Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume three, chapters 51 through 60. What we do in this program is we start out class with a brief meditation just to prepare the mind for the class ahead. This will help you to retain the teachings for a longer period of time and be able to implement them into your life. Then after the meditation, I will share the chapters chapter by chapter and we will have somebody read those either me or somebody else in zoom might decide that they would like to volunteer to read so we'll read each individual chapter and then i'll share teachings on that chapter and open up to any questions that you have if this is your first time here i'd like to welcome you and if you've been joining regularly i'd like to welcome you as well the way that this works best for your learning is that if you read the chapters prior to class you'll get a whole lot more out of this program of course if you haven't read these chapters you're more than welcome to join us for class because we're going to study them in the class but by reading them prior to class you'll be able to read the words of the Buddha you'll see the reference back to the original Pali Canon and be able to access any teachings there and you'll also see reflections that I've shared to be able to better help you to understand the teachings that the Buddha is sharing he spoke very clear very concise and very precise but it's always helpful to have some deeper reflections and to understand various aspects of the teachings that they connect to and that's what I'm sharing with you in this book that we're not going to be able to actually go through thoroughly in our class so that's why it's helpful to actually read these prior to class so then you'll probably come to class with certain questions that you might need to get answered so the way that you get access to these books is you go to buddhadailywisdom.com from there you can download the books for free you can take the book and go print it because it's a soft file it's a PDF file you can print it anywhere you like or you can order these as a Kindle version or a printed version on Amazon. If you have access to Amazon in your country, you can actually access them there. So feel free to join us for the meditation and the class afterwards. So I'd like to invite you to join for meditation. I'll start out with just a brief chant and then I will guide you in a meditation once we actually get into the meditation itself. So if you'd like to take a position of either seated, lying, or standing, those tend to be the best positions for learning online. I'll just do some chanting to ease us into meditation and then I'll just do some very brief guidance because this is just a short little meditation just prior to class. Potang mahakewanhang apiwate yami. 
สวัสดีมากวัตตมุดามังนามสามสุปฏิปันโนมาคือวัตโตสาวกสังโฆสังขังนามามินับมรสาภาคือวัตโตอารตุสมสัพพุตสานับมวยรสาภาคว่าตุอารตุสมสัพพุตสานับมวยรสาภาคว่าตุอารตุสมมาสัพพุตสาอิติปิสุมาเกวาอรหังสมมาสัมโตวิชาจารณังสัมโนสกาตโรกาวิตุอนุเตโรปุริสาดามาสติสัตตาวามนุสนังพุตโตภาควัตเมื่อใจ
and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to label the thought, observe it, analyze it, or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you notice that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath. Cutting off and letting go anytime the mind moves off the breath. Breathing in and out.
to gradually ease your way out of meditation. We'll go ahead and switch over to our class of studying chapters 51 through chapters 60 today. These are 10 individual chapters. And for all of you guys that are in the live class, you're able to ask questions as we go. So I'll just look to the people who are in Zoom to see if there's anybody who would like to volunteer to read a chapter. And then after someone reads the chapter, then I will share any teachings related to that chapter and then open up to any questions. So if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your questions into the comment section and I'll be able to see that and answer your question. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So is there anyone in Zoom who would like to read this first chapter? Okay, so it looks like nobody's volunteering, so I'll go ahead and read it, okay? So here, Chapter 51, the title is Leading to Hell, to the Animal Realm. 
into the realm of afflicted spirits. So before I even start reading this particular chapter, because it's obvious from the title what this is about, it's about the lower realms, it's important to understand, and you'll see this in the beginning part of this book, that the Buddha never used his teachings on the different realms as either to hang a carrot for you to be able to get to rebirth or to guilt, shame, or fear you into understanding anything about the lower realms uh, in order to practice his teachings. Because remember, the path to enlightenment is to get to enlightenment so that there is no guilt, shame, and fear. So the Buddha wouldn't use guilt, shame, and fear or other type of feelings that might be produced in your mind as a way to incentivize you or motivate you to learn the teachings of the Buddha. And he wouldn't use rebirth in the heavenly realm as a way to kind of incentivize you to learn his teachings because his goal is for you to get to enlightenment so you'll never experience rebirth ever again and to get rid of those discontent feelings. So as soon as you start seeing teachings about the cycle of rebirth, even if you haven't independently verified the cycle of rebirth yet, don't ever think that the Buddha is using it as a way to guilt, shame, or fear you or hold a carrot in order to get you to learn and practice his teachings. He's just sharing true reality to help you understand what really is transpiring with these natural laws of existence. So after I read this one, I will help you to understand what he's actually teaching. So here he says, monks, the destruction of life repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, the destruction of life, at minimum, leads to a short lifespan. Taking what is not given, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, taking what is not given, at minimum, leads to loss of wealth. Sexual misconduct, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, sexual misconduct, at minimum, leads to hostility and competition. False speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, False speech, at minimum, leads to false accusations. Argumentative speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, to the realm of afflicted spirits. For the one reborn as a human being, argumentative speech, at a minimum, leads to being separated from one's friends. Harsh speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, harsh speech at minimum leads to hearing disagreeable things. Idle chatter, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, idle chatter at minimum leads to others distrusting one's words. Drinking liquor and wine, ingestion of substances that cause heedlessness, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, drinking liquor and wine, ingestion of substances that cause heedlessness, at minimum, leads to madness. 
Okay, so this is a very rare type of discourse that the Buddha is sharing because what he's doing is he's taking a lot of the teachings from the five precepts and other parts of his teachings like right speech and helping you to see what it actually leads to in future rebirths. And here he's explaining that if you destroy life, meaning that you don't practice that first precept and you do this repeatedly and you develop it and cultivate it, it leads to rebirth in the hell realm, animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. These lower realms, we've all been there for sure, for the most part. And as we are reborn into this human realm, we've done a whole lot of work through countless rebirths in order to just get to the point of a human birth. So a human birth is ideal. Obtaining the human state is very rare. So we shouldn't allow this opportunity to go to waste and we should ensure that we're cultivating the mind in order to move as close to enlightenment or to get to enlightenment as we can in this life. Being reborn into hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits, this is very detrimental to one's existences because the Buddha describes rebirth into hell in the animal realm as being like in a prison because it's very challenging to get out of those realms because in the animal realm, for example, a lot of the animals that are in the animal realm need to constantly kill in order to eat and sustain their life. So it's very challenging to let go of killing as an animal in order to get to a better rebirth. Also, animals tend to steal and they tend to have sexual misconduct. So in an animal birth, it's very challenging to get out of that existence. So you typically need to go through countless animal existences just to get to the point where you can potentially be reborn into the human realm. So this human state is the ideal state. And here he's explaining that even if you're reborn as a human being, if you were killing, that at minimum it leads to a shorter lifespan. Because if you think about this, you can independently verify for yourself that if somebody repeatedly is killing, that oftentimes people want to kill that person. If you think about soldiers going off to war, even though their government has allowed them to go to war and they're not prosecuted for murder, oftentimes they experience a shorter lifespan. If you're 18, 20, 25, you go to war, if you're killing, you're very likely to be killed yourself or other types of killings as well. So you can go through each individual one of these and you can independently verify this for yourself and see what the Buddha is sharing with you is just this cause and effect or action and result. He's exposing to you the natural law of gamma because the more wisdom you have about this natural law, you will make wiser choices. So if you learn the five precepts, which I taught recently in the group learning program, we also discussed briefly in this program a couple of weeks ago, then you can learn those deeply and you can practice them closely and you can see that it leads to improved results in your life, that you're no longer causing harm, so therefore less and less harm is coming to you. And this will help you get closer to enlightenment, but it will also, if you need to be reborn, it will help you get to an improved rebirth. So rather than go through each one of these, because this is very straightforward, I'll just open up to any questions that you guys might have related to this. This is essentially the five precepts and some of right speech from the Eightfold Path. This one about idle chatter, harsh speech, argumentative speech, and false speech. These are all from right speech. The false speech is from the five precepts, but it also shows up as right speech on the Eightfold Path. But these others, like argumentative speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter, that's all part of right speech in the Eightfold Path. 
But then he also concludes with the fifth precept, which is about ingesting substances that cause heedlessness, because if you ingest substances that cause heedlessness, you're more likely to do all those others, like killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, practicing wrong speech and so forth. And that's going to cause you significant difficulties in your life. So he will typically end like the five precepts or a teaching like this with the teaching about substances that cause heedlessness because this one has a tendency to, for all the other ones to more likely occur. If you talk to people who are in prison, they might be there for murder or robbery or something else like this, breaking and entering into a home, assault and battery or something like that. But about 80% of them will tell you the true reason why they're there is because of substances that cause heedlessness. They say that, you know, they would have never murdered that person if they weren't high on crystal meth or something like that, or they would have never robbed that bank if they didn't need to buy cocaine or something like that. So you will see that people that oftentimes find themselves in difficult situations due to their choices and decisions, they're there because of substances that cause heedlessness, even though they're ultimately might have gotten caught for murder or robbery or something like this. So if you guys have questions, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll see that. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'm seeing a question here in Facebook that's asking, is the PDF available? The answer is yes. If you go to our website, buddhadailywisdom.com, you will see the button for free books. And from there, you'll be able to download all 12 of them. We're in volume three today, chapters 51 through 60. So you can download those as you need to read them. And not only will you get the words of the Buddha, but you'll get that reference and you'll get the words that I'm sharing as well. So you're welcome to download it from there. I'm not seeing any questions in YouTube or Zoom. So we'll go ahead and move into the next chapter. And anytime you guys in Zoom would like to maybe volunteer, you're welcome to do that. Otherwise, I'll just keep reading. Okay, so chapter 52, the title here is Reappear in a Happy Destination. But here, student, some man or woman, abandoning the killing of living beings, abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside. Gently and kindly, he resides compassionate to all living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a happy destination in the heavenly world, he instead comes back to the human state. Then, wherever he is reborn, he is long lived. But here, student, some man or woman is not given to injuring beings with the hand, with the clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such actions on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But instead, he comes back to the human state. Then wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. But here, student, some man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. 
But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. But here, student, some man or woman is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. But here, student, some man or woman is not jealous. One who does not become jealous, resentful, and feel bitter about the gains, honor, respect, gratitude, salutations, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is influential. But here, student, some man or woman is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one for whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is high-born. But here, student, some man or woman visits an aesthetic or Brahmin and asks, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wise. Okay. So the way that I suggest that you look at a discourse like this from the Buddha is he's sharing certain qualities that would be wise to cultivate in your practice. And he says, if you cultivate these qualities upon your death, you'll be reborn in the heavenly world. Or if you come back to the human realm, you will experience this benefit. Well, these same things that he's describing that lead to rebirth in the heavenly world or some beneficial outcome in the human world, these are also the same exact things that lead to enlightenment. So if you're not interested in rebirth, you're not interested in a heavenly rebirth, you're not interested in coming back to the human realm, you're interested in getting to enlightenment and ending this whole cycle of rebirth now, then what you can do with a discourse like this is you can go through and you can parse out what it is that he's describing and start developing that as part of your practice. So this first one that he's talking about, he's talking about living compassionately for all living beings and not killing. Well, that's part of the first precept, so you might already be deciding to practice that. Then he's also talking about essentially right action here, not injuring other beings with your hand, your clod, your stick, or your knife, ensuring that you're not causing bodily harm with your body, not harming others through the bodily actions. Then he says, somebody gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, 
dwelling in lamps to aesthetics and Brahmins. These are the teachers. These are the people who are sharing the teachings in the world. By you making offerings, you're helping those people to share more and more of their teachings in the world. And more and more people learn the teachings. And now you become part of a larger and larger community that more and more people are learning and practicing these teachings. You have more and more people to talk to, to understand the teachings, to become role models. And by you making these offerings, it's helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So it's helping your mind to get closer and closer to enlightenment because it's helping you to get rid of craving, desire, attachment. But you're also supporting the continued growth of the community of people who are learning and practicing these teachings by supporting a teacher. More and more people will come to learn these teachings and then you'll have more people to interact with and learn from and become role models with and discuss the teachings, which is ultimately going to help you. Then if you are not angry, irritable when you are criticized, that you're not offended and you do not become angry, hostile and resentful or bitter when somebody's criticizing you, then this is a very helpful quality of your mind that this is helping you to eliminate that personal existence view, that very first fetter. And it's also helping you to eliminate the fetter of ill will as well. So by you training your mind this way that when someone's being critical, that you don't take it in an angry, irritable way and you're not offended by it, you can just be non-hostile and non-resentful and non-bitter, then this is going to help you get closer and closer to enlightenment because an unenlightened mind is only going to want to hear agreeable things. So when you hear disagreeable things, when you hear criticism, you're going to potentially get angry or hostile or bitter because the mind hasn't got one of its cravings fulfilled, which is it's craving permanent agreeable speech from other people about your self-image or your self-identity. There's a certain central desire in there in the mind. And when the mind doesn't get that fulfilled, it'll move to ill will. So by you training your mind to listen to criticism and whatever somebody says, okay, that's their opinion, that's their view. You don't need to get angry and upset about it. This is gonna lead to your mind becoming more and more enlightened. But as with all of these, if you don't get to enlightenment, it's going to lead to an improved rebirth, either in the heavenly realm or in the human realm. Then the Buddha talks about someone who's not jealous, that when other people are having gain, honor, respect, gratitude, salutations, or venerations, that you don't get jealous as a result of that. By not having jealousy, this ensures that you're not having craving, desire, attachment, because jealousy will spring up from craving, desire, attachment. So if you practice the opposite of jealousy, which is sympathetic joy, sympathetic joy is joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So when you see somebody else get a promotion at work, or you see somebody get a new house or a new car, or they go on a trip and they travel around the world, and maybe you want to do those same things, maybe you want those same things, but you should have joy for this other person's success, even though they're having gain or even though they're being honored or respected by other people. And maybe you're not. Maybe people don't look at you that way. It's okay. Don't be jealous. Just maintain your mind. Protect the mind. Don't allow jealousy to arise. And just practice sympathetic joy that you're joyful for their success. Then the Buddha talks here about being stubborn or arrogant and that someone pays homage and receives homage, that essentially you're working on eliminating conceit, 
that if you give up your seat to other people, that you should rise up and let people sit and these other things, that if you're practicing to not be stubborn and to not be arrogant, that means you're working on eliminating conceit. So by eliminating conceit, once again, this is going to get you closer to enlightenment because conceit is one of the fetters. But it's also, if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason, it's going to lead to an improved rebirth in the heavenly realm or the human realm. And when the Buddha is talking about highborn here, what he's talking about is during that lifetime, people considered if you were born into a rich, wealthy family, that your life was going to be much better than someone who's born into a family of laborers and things like this, because in that rich, wealthy family, you wouldn't have to work as hard in order to sustain your life. During the lifetime of the Buddha, it was very challenging to sustain your life. I mean, just think about how they got water. You know, two or three times a week, somebody had to carry buckets back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Nowadays, we kind of take it for granted that we can just walk over to a faucet and open the water. Same thing with indoor plumbing for using the bathroom or taking a shower or acquiring food or clothing or these kind of things. It was a lot of work during that lifetime to be able to sustain your life. And if you were born into a wealthy family, you didn't have to worry about those things, which would give you more time to be able to learn and practice the teachings to get to enlightenment so that you're not experiencing rebirth and coming back and experiencing this all over again. So essentially what he's talking about here is being born into a situation where it's very easy for you to attain the basic necessities of life. And then he talks about if somebody is visiting an aesthetic or Brahmin, these are people who are sharing teachings to be able to help you to get to enlightenment. And you're asking them questions. What is wholesome? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? So if you're asking questions to a teacher, either you're taking classes or you're visiting that person one-on-one -on -one and personal guidance and things like this, as you're learning and practicing the teachings and trying to understand what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what's going to lead to my peacefulness, this is all very helpful for you. It's going to lead to your enlightenment is what it's going to do. But if you fall short of that, once again, it'll lead to an improved rebirth, either in the heavenly world or in the human state. And if you're reborn into the human state, you'll experience more wisdom. That, that wisdom that you cultivated in one life those memories move into a future life as well. So any wisdom that you cultivate in this life, if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason, it's going to help you in that next life. You're going to have those residual memories to help you. But the ultimate goal would be to cultivate enough wisdom and train your mind deeply enough that you don't experience rebirth. That would be the most ideal situation for you. You can then enjoy the rest of this life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, and you won't experience rebirth. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Again, you guys know how you can do that is through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put that into the comment section, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here in any of our platforms. So that means we should move on to the next chapter. This is a short chapter. Is there someone in Zoom that might be interested to read a short chapter? I'm going to try. Okay. I like hearing you guys read. If worry uh, conditions gain a loss, shame and shame, blame and plate, uh, place, pleasure and pain, these conditions that people meet are impermanent conditions and subject to change. Our eyes and mindful person knows them 
and see that they are subject to change. Dissolvable conditions doesn't excite his mind, nor is it suddened by undissolvable conditions. All right. Thank you, Ponya. So here, the Buddha is talking about gain and loss, shame and fame, blame and praise, pleasure and pain. These are exact opposites of each other. These are the things that we experience in life. And as a result of that, a person's mind might either become excited or saddened. So if you experience gain, you're gaining some kind of material wealth, you might get excited. Or if you experience loss, you might get sad. And what the Buddha is explaining here is that if you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, essentially, that you will no longer experience that excitement and that sadness when you experience these things. Same thing with shame, right? If you experience a certain situation happen, if someone's talking bad about you, you won't experience sadness as a result if you eliminate the craving. Or if you experience fame, you won't experience all this excitement just because you're famous, because that would be conditional feeling. Same thing with blame. If somebody blames you for something, if you've eliminated craving, you won't feel sad when that happens because you'll know that I didn't do that and this person might be blaming you for it, but you're not craving for people to permanently understand what you've done and what you haven't done. And if someone chooses to blame you, then you might try to sort that out or resolve it or address it, but you're not going to feel sad. And the same thing is if somebody praises you, if you've eliminated this craving, desire, attachment from the mind, of conceit or personal existence view, uh, the ego essentially, when someone praises you, you might say thank you for your kind words or I appreciate your thoughtfulness or whatever you might say, or you might just say nothing or you might just smile or whatever it is, but you won't allow the mind to get those conditioned pleasant feelings of excitement or elation just because someone's praising you. Because if you allow the mind to do that, then when someone blames you, now you're going to feel sad. So you need to restrain the mind so that it no longer experiences those conditional feelings. And then the Buddha talks about this pleasure and pain, that when you're experiencing something that would potentially arise pleasant feelings in the mind, you don't allow that to occur, that those are conditioned pleasant feelings. Now, an enlightened being, they're going to be beyond this, right? They're going to be enjoying many aspects of life. They're going to be very fulfilled. So if an enlightened being eats a piece of chocolate cake, wow, they know it tastes good and they really enjoy it, but their mind is not clinging to it expecting it to be permanent because they'll know that it is impermanent, right? They know that it's subject to change, that it's transient. So when you're doing something pleasurable in your life, you shouldn't allow the mind to indulge in these conditioned pleasant feelings based on the condition of you doing something. You might decide to have a conversation with a friend or go to the movies, go to a restaurant, and you'll enjoy that time that you're together. But then when it's over, it's over and you just move on. Whereas if you're craving and clinging and you allow the mind to experience those conditioned pleasant feelings, then you're going to experience painful feelings when it's over because the mind can no longer experience that. So you need to restrain the mind when it will experience those conditioned pleasant feelings by letting go of the temporary happiness. You can then experience the permanent joy or this unconditioned happiness in the mind. So as long as you hold on to conditional happiness, you won't be able to experience unconditioned happiness. What conditioned happiness is, is you have all these conditions. If this happens and 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 this happens, then I'll be happy. 
but that's only temporary because it's conditional. All those conditions start changing and now you're sad. What an enlightened being is experiencing is unconditional happiness. They wake up all day long and they go to sleep happy or they look outside, it's sunny, they're already happy before they saw the sun. But then when it rains, their mind is still happy. Their mind is still joyful. So if you allow the mind to experience conditional happiness when it's sunny outside, then that means when it's raining, you're going to be sad, right? So you're not interested in this temporary happiness, this temporary excitement. What you're looking for is that unconditional joy, that unconditional happiness, that no matter what's happening in your life, you can maintain your happiness and your joy. And the way that you do that is where you see the mind trying to take on this conditional feelings, you restrain the mind and you pull it back. You don't allow the craving desire attachments to base its inner feelings on some object like this. So you'll need to get familiar with those four foundations of mindfulness, observe those bodily sensations that are coming when you experience those pleasant feelings or painful feelings. There's certain bodily sensations that are occurring and where you see that occurring, restrain the mind and pull it back, cut off and let go of whatever that is so that now the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene and consent with joy based on unconditioned right unconditioned happiness what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter okay it looks like we have a question coming in here on youtube if we are on this path reborn into the human realm we will already be inclined to continue learning the buddhist teachings yes that's very true that if you are on the path to enlightenment in your in this human realm and then you're reborn into another human existence you'll maintain the wisdom of these teachings there'll be certain residual memories that go into that next life so you will tend to find the path to enlightenment more easily in your next life not everybody of course that would be permanence but this tends to be the way that it occurs and then once you actually find the path to enlightenment you'll be able to absorb the teachings much more readily and it'll be easier for you than if you had never studied these teachings ever before so if when you're learning the buddhist teachings they just make sense to you it's almost like you're talking to an old friend and you've learned these teachings before it's very likely that you would have learned these in a previous life and conversely, if you find it very challenging and very difficult and very much a struggle to learn these teachings, it's most likely because you haven't learned these before in previous lives, this might be your first life of learning them. Either way, it doesn't matter. You're going to need to arise dedication, determination, and diligence to learn and practice the teachings. You're going to need to gain that motivation and enthusiasm. So arise those qualities in the mind and work towards developing your practice. But this is true that if you happen to be on this path or you were on this path before, you'll find the path more readily and you'll find it more easy to learn and practice in that human life. Looks like we have another question coming in here too on Zoom. I can't find where to raise my hand on the phone. I always wonder why it would be desirable to never be reborn especially compared to being reborn in the heavenly realm is that attachment sure i'll help you christine if you look under participant i think that's where you can electronically raise your hand but i'll go ahead and answer this question for you you actually have two questions here why is it undesirable essentially to never be reborn once there's birth there's going to be sickness aging and death 
And these are very challenging and problematic for the mind that as long as there's existence in a realm, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death, and there's going to be discontentedness because you can't be reborn already enlightened. If you're born, the mind is unenlightened, therefore it's struggling with the pollutions of mind of craving, anger, and ignorance. So therefore, you're going to experience discontentedness. You're going to experience sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, despair, and who's interested in experiencing that? You can actually train your mind to get to the point where you eliminate that in this life, and then you enjoy the rest of your life with a peaceful and joyful mind, and then you won't need to come back and experience that misery and grief and despair and the sickness, aging, and death all over again, because that's what we've been experiencing countless times in this human life and in previous lives. We've experienced this over and over again, so it's kind of like, you know, you want to get off this roller coaster. You, you'd like to get off this merry-go-round and stop going around and around and around in circles. Then the next thing you were asking is, especially being compared to being reborn in the heavenly realm. So being reborn in the heavenly realm, heavenly realm is not an ideal place to exist. In the heavenly realm, they're experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all of these, they tend to be very complacent in the heavenly realm. You can get to enlightenment from a heavenly rebirth or a human rebirth. In the heavenly realm, it's not ideal because there tends to not be motivation and encouragement because you're only experiencing pleasant feelings. In the human realm, we've got pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So we kind of have built-in motivation that if we experience sadness and anger and grief and despair and guilt and shame and fear, we tend to have built-in motivation in order to make our way to the teachings and make our way to enlightenment because we're interested in getting away from those painful feelings. But in the heavenly realm, they don't have that. So they tend to be complacent, they tend to be reborn, and they tend to go back down into either the human realm or they can even go down into the lower realms of hell, animal, and afflicted spirits. So those heavenly beings, it's not an ideal place to exist. I know there's a lot of people in the world that think that that's what they would like to experience, but that is not what you should be interested in because you're kind of setting yourself up to fail that there is this longer lifespan in the heavenly realm and there are all those pleasant feelings, but from heaven you could end up in hell. You can end up back into the animal realm and constantly being reborn there again. You can end up in the afflicted spirits realm and you can end up in the human realm as well. So a heavenly rebirth is not ideal. And then your last part here, is that an attachment? If somebody is craving to be reborn in any realm whatsoever, that is an attachment. And this is the sixth and seventh fetter of the 10 fetters. So there's desire for form and there's desire for formless. These are the sixth and seventh fetter. They're part of the higher fetters. So you need to train the mind to eliminate the pollution or the taint or the obstacle, the obstruction of mind where the mind wants to be reborn. As long as the mind's wanting to be reborn, it's still holding on to existence. It's still holding on to this world. So therefore, it still has craving and it can't get to enlightenment as long as there's any craving of any type. So if there's craving for you know, an ice cream, if there's craving for a new computer, or craving for clothes, if there's any craving whatsoever, the mind's going to experience rebirth, including craving for existence in one of the form realms or formless realms. 
the form realms are the animal realm and the human realm. These are the realms that have physical form. The formless realms are the realms that don't have physical form, like hell realm, afflicted spirits, and the heavenly realm. These realms don't have any kind of physical form, so we call them the formless realms. So thanks for those questions. Let me see if we have any on Facebook. Yes, I see there's a question here on Facebook. Can you explain the animal realm? Okay, so the animal realm is the animals that we have seen and interact with on different situations, whether it's a dog or cat or a mouse or a rat or a worm or a bird or an ant or a beetle, a fish, a whale, any of these animals in the animal realm, these are all beings that are experiencing pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. They experience the same three feelings as the human realm, but they lack the ability to cultivate their mind all the way to enlightenment because a dog can't come into the classroom and learn the Four Noble Truths and the, the Eightfold Path and the Five Precepts. They can't train their mind through meditation in the same way that a human being can. So in an animal existence, they're going to be reborn. They can't get to enlightenment from that existence, but they can be reborn into higher realms, like they can move upwards to either afflicted spirits, human realm, or even to the heavenly realm. It's very rare for a being to go from the animal realm up to the heavenly realm, but it is possible. Oftentimes there's countless rebirths in the animal realm that needs to take place in order for it to get to the human realm. That would be ideal because that's where there tends to be the most motivation and encouragement and enthusiasm to get to enlightenment. So all of us that are in the human realm, we've all pretty much experienced countless rebirths. The vast majority of the humans have been reborn out of the animal realm. This is why if you look at the unenlightened mind and you understand the enlightened mind, the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal. A lot of people consider human beings to be an animal and we're not. We're not animals, we're a human being. But the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal. We will tend to perhaps kill, to steal, to have sexual misconduct, to do things like animals do. And because of that, there's a lot of difficulties and struggles with those pollutions of mind. But where that's coming from is conditioning from our previous lives. Even that conceit and that arrogance and that pride, the measuring and comparing, putting people above us or putting ourselves below other people or putting ourselves above people, this comes from our animal existences. Because when we were wolves, we needed an alpha male and an alpha female. We needed to know who that was so they could protect us and teach us to hunt and how to fight and things like this. We needed the matriarch of our elephant herd to show us where the food and the water was. So we needed to know who was above us and who's below us in the animal realm. But in the human realm, we don't need that. We're interested in everybody being equal. When somebody has arrogance and pride or they put themselves below other people, this is very problematic to your own mind and to your own practice. So even though the unenlightened mind in the human realm functions very much like an animal, what you're working to do is purify the mind of the pollutions that are leading to that conduct. Essentially what you're doing on the path to enlightenment is you're becoming a better and better human being. This is why if you get to the first or second stage of enlightenment, 
and you need to be reborn, you're going to come back into the human realm because you've become more and more of a human. Whereas if you're not in those first two stages of enlightenment, the more likely thing is that you're going to be reborn into the lower realms. So what you're doing on this path to enlightenment, among everything else, as you're purifying the mind and eliminating those pollutions, you're essentially training the mind to become a better and better human being. And that's what you would like to work on, because in that animal existences, we couldn't do that. So our mind has been conditioned by those countless animal existences. And that's why in the unenlightened state, we tend to function very much like animals. Excellent question, guys. I, really wonderful to see all these great questions. All right, it looks like those are all the questions we have right now. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter. Thank you, Banya, for reading that. Here you can see in the description of the chapter, you know, I give further details. You know, I give this chart and different things like this that you guys would like to probably read as part of these chapters. So now we're in chapter 54. Is there anyone in Zoom that would like to read this particular chapter? All right, Caldon, go ahead. Deeds with fruit that result in great accomplishment and power. Having cultivated for seven years a mind of loving kindness, for seven eons of contraction and expansion, I did not return to this world. Whenever the eon contracted, I reached the plane of streaming radiance. And when the eon expanded, I arose in an empty heavenly mansion. And there I was Brahma, God, the great Brahma, the unvanquished victor, the all-knowing, the all-powerful. Thirty-six times I was Satan, ruler of the heavenly beings, and many hundreds of times I was a wheel-turning monarch, Rachos, a king of righteousness, conqueror of the four regions of the earth, maintaining stability in the land in possession of the seven treasures. What need is there to speak of mere local kingship? It occurred to me, monks, to wonder of what kind of deed is of what kind of deed of mine is this the fruit? Of what deeds ripening am I now of such great accomplishment and power? And then it occurred to me, it is the fruit of three kinds of deeds of mine. The ripening of three kinds of deeds that I, that I am now of such great accomplishment and power. Deeds of giving, of mastery of the mind, and of refraining. All right. Thank you, Kaldon. This is a very interesting chapter, and I'll walk you guys through this and help you guys understand this. The Buddha is talking about, you know, what he did essentially in order to get to enlightenment and train his mind is developing loving kindness. And of course, all of his teachings is explaining what he did in order to get to enlightenment. But here he's highlighting the fact that he cultivated his mind with loving kindness and he did that for seven years. And then he talks about some other things that he did there. But ultimately what he gets to is he starts talking about some of his rebirths. He's talking here essentially about being God, right? So a lot of times people think that the Buddha denied the existence of God or he didn't teach about God, but he absolutely did. In the teachings of the Buddha, he refers to God as Brahma, much like a Muslim would refer to God as Allah. It's the different name, but it's referencing the same being, this supreme being that in English we refer to as God. In Arabic, they might refer to this being as Allah. 
in the time of the life of the Buddha, they refer to this being as Brahma, and there's other languages that refer to this being in other ways. So here he's talking about essentially being this all-knowing and all-powerful God. What I think he's probably talking about is looking out at the world as God, because God is an individual being that isn't being reborn. They are in existence. This being has an enormous lifespan. So the Buddha wasn't reborn as God in the past. I think what he's actually describing is him looking out at the world as if he is God, all-knowing and all-powerful. And he experienced this at one point in his life. And then he talks about these other rebirths as well. 36 times he was this ruler of the heavenly beings. Hundreds of times he was a wheel-turning monarch, which if you guys have questions about that, I'll explain what a wheel-turning monarch is. And he talks about other things here. And he says, you know, what is there to speak of mere local kingship? Talking about like, so what? You know, this big deal, like being a king here in this local kingdom, what does it really matter if I've already been all these other beings and I've experienced all these other previous rebirths, why would I really be attached to being a king? Because he gave up his royal heritage. He walked away from the royal family and decided to help people experience enlightenment. So he's basically saying, you know, like, why would I be attached to this kingship when I've already experienced things that were even better than what I would have experienced in this life had I remained a prince and became a king? So then he goes on and he says, you know, what is it that led to this great accomplishment of being able to get to enlightenment as a Buddha in this last life? And he's going through and he's getting ready to share with you the three things that led to him being able to get to enlightenment through practice in his previous lives and through practice in this life. What was it that truly led to his enlightenment? It's not only here, but it's in other parts of his teachings as well. He talks about the practice of generosity. The practice of generosity was a main thing in this teaching and in other teachings that he talks about of giving and sharing, that this is what led to him being able to get to enlightenment on his own in his last life. Because if you understand what's causing discontentedness, which is craving, desire, attachment, and getting to enlightenment is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and it's generosity that helps you do that, then you would understand that practicing generosity and giving and sharing over multiple lifetimes, this is what's ultimately going to lead to your enlightenment. So even a Buddha will have needed to have practiced significant amount of giving and sharing, practicing generosity in their last life, but also in their previous lives as well. And that's the main thing that's helping along with breathing mindfulness meditation and other teachings. But this is one of the main things that's leading to the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, because with craving, desire, attachment, the mind's going to feel selfish. It's going to hold on to your money, to your clothes, to your possessions, to various things that you have in life. It's going to want to hold on to these things very tightly. So if you can share your clothes, if you can share your money, if you can share your food, if you can share your house, letting people sleep there, if you can share your car and these kind of things, it trains your mind to let go and not to hold on to these things very tightly. You would like to be to the point where you understand all these things are impermanent, they don't belong to you, and you can easily let them go. So practicing giving and sharing is what's going to help with that. Then there's this mastery of the mind. This is practicing the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path, that right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, training the mind 
through that, but also training the mind in moral conduct and gaining wisdom as well, the entire path. So mastering the mind, understanding the mind inside and out, backwards and forwards. The Buddha is explaining to you what those teachings are in his teachings, but then you'll need to independently investigate those and verify them so that then you can practice and see the truth for yourself and gain this mastery of the mind. And then lastly, he talks about this refraining. What he's talking about here is he's talking about restraining the mind. So maybe in situations where your mind is craving and longing and yearning, maybe you're in the mall and you see this new pair of shoes and you feel your mind pulling or longing for that. You need to restrain the mind. Or you see a new phone or a new computer and you're like, oh, I really want that. And you need to restrain the mind and pull it back. Or you want a new house just for the sake of having a bigger house and looking better for other people. You need to restrain the mind and pull that back. These are the three things that he's saying which led to his great accomplishment is generosity, mastering the teachings through training the mind and mastering the mind, and then restraining the mind and refraining from things like stealing and sexual misconduct and lying and substances that cause heedlessness and other things that you're gonna need to restrain your mind from and then that is going to help you to eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments, so that then you can experience this liberation or the freedom of strong feelings. So let me know what questions you guys have on this, either through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Remember, you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom, or you can put that into the comment section. In Facebook and YouTube, you would need to put it into the comment section. I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook. And I don't see any in YouTube either. So we can go ahead and move on to the next chapter. Chapter 55. I'll go ahead and read this one. And then if any of the rest of you guys would like to read some future ones, just let me know. Here, chapter 55. An unsurpassed field of merit for the world. Monks, these eight persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What eight? The stream enterer, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of stream entry. The once returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of once returning. The non-returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of non-returning. The arahant, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of arahantship. These eight persons, monks, are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutations, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world, the four practicing the way, and the four established in the fruit. This is the upright community, composed in wisdom in virtuous behavior or moral conduct, for people intent on sacrifice, for living beings seeking merit, making merit that ripens in the acquisitions. What is given to the community bears great fruit. Okay, so in that last chapter, the Buddha was talking about how giving led to his improvement in the condition of his mind and how that was really helpful for him in order to get to enlightenment. So here, he's describing the type of people to make offerings to. If you decide you would like to make offerings and produce merit, because remember, there's generosity and then there's merit. 
what generosity is, which is what you would need to practice. You will need generosity. You will need merit. What generosity is, is practicing the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any given situation. You're going to be practicing and need to practice generosity in many different situations. If you're walking into a store and you hold the door for yourself, if there's someone behind you, perhaps you hold the door. Or if somebody drops something at the store, you might help them pick it up. Or you might help somebody return their cart back to a shopping place. Or you might see your neighbor needs help with something. Or you might have made some food and share that with your neighbor or something like that. There's all kinds of different generosity in your work environment and in your personal environment where you can practice generosity, the giving and sharing of your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required in any given situation. That's generosity. But if you practice generosity towards the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha with teachers or temples or making opportunities available for people to get help with these teachings, this is what's called merit. And what the Buddha is describing here is merit. Because if you're making offerings to anybody who's established in one of the four stages of enlightenment, that's what he's talking about here. Stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and otterhunt. These are the four stages of enlightenment. The mind is actually enlightened when it's in the stage as an otterhunt, the fourth stage. But these other stages, the mind is very firmly rooted in these stages of enlightenment and it won't regress backwards from there. So if you're making offerings to somebody who's in one of these four stages of enlightenment, you're supporting and encouraging them to continue on the path and get more and more enlightened. And if people are actually sharing the teachings, then you're helping to support the teachings coming into the world. But also what's occurring is in order for you to make an offering to somebody who's either a stream enter or once returner or non-returner or otter hunt, you're going to have to have enough wisdom to be able to discern whether somebody is in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment. And the way that you cultivate that wisdom is you learn the teachings of the Buddha. And by you now coming in contact with a stream enter, a once returner, a non-returner, an otter hunt, you're going to gain more and more wisdom to be able to understand these teachings and get to enlightenment yourself. So this is of huge benefit to you to make offerings to people who are in one of these four stages of enlightenment and who are sharing these teachings because it helps you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It helps those individuals to get further on their path. And it helps you to come in contact with people who have a lot of wisdom about the path so that then you can get further and further along the path. So that's what the Buddha is talking about with these first four types of people. Then he's talking about one who is practicing for the realization of either stream entry, once returner, non-returner, or otter hunt. So those are people who are in the process of getting to that particular stage of enlightenment. And then he explains here the four practicing the way. Those are the people who are practicing to get to one of those four stages of enlightenment. Then the four established in the fruit. Those are the four individuals who are established in one of the four stages of enlightenment. He's saying this is the upright community because during his lifetime, there were many people who were teaching that their teachings didn't necessarily lead to enlightenment. And those people were teaching. The Buddha was sharing his teachings and he knew that his teachings led to enlightenment. But these other people were sharing their teachings and people were making offerings because they didn't know the difference. You know, the average household practitioner didn't know what the difference was between the Buddha's teachings and some other teacher's teaching because they weren't 
deeply learning and practicing the teachings. So the Buddha is making sure people understand that it's his community that is the upright community because he knows that it's his teachings that lead to enlightenment and that they're composed in wisdom and virtuous behavior. So when you're making an offering, you should see somebody has a high degree of virtuous behavior or moral conduct. You should see that they're not killing, they're not stealing, they're not having sexual misconduct, they're not lying, they're not taking substances that cause heedlessness, they're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. You should see the wisdom, the virtuous behavior or moral conduct, and you should even see the mental discipline there as well for anybody who's in one of those four stages of enlightenment. And then he's saying, for people intent on sacrifice, for living beings seeking merit. So if you're interested in essentially practicing to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and you're seeking merit to improve your ability to get closer and closer to enlightenment, which this merit ripens in the acquisitions. What that means is the acquisitions of the four stages of enlightenment in the necessities that you need in order to sustain your life. That when you're practicing generosity towards these people, these eight individuals, then you're going to have the ability to get closer and closer to the attainment of these stages of enlightenment yourself. Then he says here, what is given to the community bears great fruit. Okay, and what he's talking about there is that when you're making offerings to the community, it's helping you, it's helping all those people who are practicing in those community. It's helping your teacher. It's helping the teacher offer their teachings because anybody who's receiving offerings as a donation, they should be using a small portion of those offerings for their own welfare, their own basic necessities like food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But then those offerings should be coming back to the community by things that that teacher is using the resources for to purchase in order to help the community. So like I can speak from my example, like I purchase meditation cushions or I purchase projectors and screens and I need to purchase things in order to help the community to learn. Like I might print things out or I might print books or things like this. So the offerings that you're making to a teacher, they should be using a certain portion of that just for their basic necessities to sustain their life. But then there should be all the rest of that coming back to the community in order to help the community to be able to learn and practice. So when you're making an offering, the gamma is that it's coming right back to you as well through learning the teachings and through having the resources that you need in order to be able to gain access to the teachings. So if you guys have any questions, let me know. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Perfect, thank you. Can I ask a general question on generosity too? Because you mentioned it uh, to bring up the difference between generosity and merit, or would you like me to ask this another time? Sure, you can ask that question if you like. Thank you. Um, I've been thinking about it for a while because there's many things that I used to do, like work with disabled people on the weekend for, for many years. But then there's always been something, how I benefited from it. And then I felt it's actually not generous because uh, I also gained something from it at the end. I didn't know it when I started it, but it, it turned out this way. And then the mind kind of started to, to 
cling to it and justify all the time that I spend there with, oh yeah, I'm also getting something out of it. It actually turned out it was it was really good to get a scholarship for me to, to have uh, been working with disabled people for many years. And it's, it's like this with many things actually. And then I'm always feeling like this, I cannot even count this as being generous. Yeah, so what pure generosity is, is where you're giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required in any given situation, and you have no expectation of anything in return. If something does come back to you, because there is going to be things coming back to you, when you practice generosity, you're going to experience the benefits of that. The gamma is going to come back to you. But that's not your purpose. That's not your expectation. That's not what you're wanting out of the practice of generosity. So it's best to be sure that when you're practicing generosity that you're doing it without any expectation of anything in return but you can be aware that there will be things that do come back to you and that's still generosity it's just that your mind wasn't necessarily expecting those things thank you that's helpful okay so it's really about setting the mind up in the right way exactly if you look at the volume 13 that's where there's a collection of teachings about generosity. You'll see that the Buddha talks about the benefits of what you're gonna experience as a result of practicing generosity, but you shouldn't be practicing generosity with those things in mind that that's what you want, but you'll just know that when they occur, that is a result of your generosity. Thank you, yeah, I noticed that it actually felt really bad to, to feel like, okay, now I'm only doing it to get this back and it kind of, destroy the whole thing. Yeah, just whenever you practice generosity, just no expectations and then your mind's protected. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you're practicing, the Buddha also Mm -hmm. talks about being joyful before you give, being calm and confident while you're giving, and then be joyful when you're done as well. So that basically you don't have remorse, like, oh my goodness, I gave too much, or no, I didn't give enough. So you'd like your mind to be joyful before giving, you would like your mind to be calm and confident while giving, and you would like the mind to be joyful afterwards as well. Thank you. All right, you're welcome, Christine. All right, so let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 56. Is there anyone in Zoom who would like to read chapter 56? Okay, I'll go ahead and read this one then. Chapter 56 is titled, People Who Generate Much Merit, or Wholesome Gamma, because merit is a particular type of wholesome gamma. Monks, whenever virtuous monastics come to a home, the people there generate much merit, wholesome gamma, on five grounds. What five? When people see virtuous monastics come to their home and they arouse hearts of confidence towards them, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to heaven. When people rise, pay homage, respect, and offer a seat to virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to birth in high families. When people remove the stain of selfishness towards virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great influence. When according to their means, people share what they have with virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great wealth. When people question virtuous monastics who come to their home, make inquiries about the teachings and listen to the teachings, 
on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great wisdom. Monks, whenever virtuous monastics come to a home, the people there generate much merit or wholesome gamma on these five grounds. So we're in this couple of chapters here where the Buddha is talking about merit and generosity and the importance of this and what it leads to. Notice that whenever he talks about practicing making offerings to teachers and monastics, people who are sharing the teachings, he always will preface it with this word virtuous or practicing good wholesome moral conduct. Because if you can think about during the lifetime of the Buddha, there must have just been thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people learning with him by the time that he died. So not all of those people are necessarily learning and practicing the teachings as closely as others. So he's encouraging people to seek out people who are practicing the virtuous moral conduct because these are the people who deeply understand the teachings, they've cultivated the wisdom, and by you supporting them, they're going to be able to then share the teachings with others and help the teachings come into the world. Whereas if there was someone who wasn't really far along in their practice, say they're an ordained practitioner, maybe they're smoking or they're hitting animals or they're drinking alcohol or having sex and things like this. These are all things that monastics shouldn't be doing as part of their precepts and part of what they've been learning and practicing. So if you see these kind of things happening, then you know that these ordained practitioners aren't practicing closely and it would be unwise for you to support them. If you see them gambling, perhaps they're buying lottery tickets, or perhaps they're eating outside of the normal time because the Buddha taught them to eat prior to 12 noon and they're only been taught to eat one meal per day. So if you see them eating at like two, three, five p.m., 6 p.m. in the evening, or that they're cooking their own food. Monastics aren't supposed to cook their own food. When you see these kind of things going on, it would be unwise to support them because it's going to lead to them continuing to be complacent. Instead, look for virtuous practitioners who are really working to apply effort to bring the teachings into the world. And the Buddha is explaining to you how to actually practice this generosity and what it actually leads to. And these are all beneficial results for you. Of course, the number one thing that you're gaining through practicing making offerings is you're getting rid of craving, desire, attachment. That's the ultimate thing. But then by practicing making offerings to virtuous practitioners, then you're actually in the presence of somebody who can now share the wisdom of what it takes to get to enlightenment. So that would be very wise to look to practice making offerings to individuals who are bringing the teachings into the world and they themselves are practicing the teachings very closely. Let me know what questions you guys have on this. If you guys have any questions, you can raise your hand in Zoom or you can put those into the comment section of Zoom. If you guys are in YouTube or Facebook, you can put that into the comment section. I'll be able to see it there and answer any questions that you might have. All right. I don't see any questions anywhere. So let's go ahead and move into the next chapter. This is chapter 57. All right. I'll just go ahead and keep reading unless somebody in Zoom decides to volunteer. This one is titled Adjusted to a Balanced Pitch. This is going to help you understand the middle way, which is a topic we just recently covered in the group learning program. Tell me, Sona, in the past, when you lived at home, weren't you skilled at the lute, which is a stringed instrument? Yes, venerable sir. What do you think, Sona? When its strings were too tight, 
Was your lute well-tuned and easy to play? No, venerable sir. When its strings were too loose, was your lute well-tuned and easy to play? No, venerable sir. But Sona, when its strings were neither too tight nor too loose, but adjusted to a balanced pitch, was your lute well-tuned and easy to play? Yes, venerable sir. So too, Sona, if energy is aroused too forcefully, this leads to restlessness, and if energy is too soft, this leads to complacency. Therefore, Sona, be determined on balance of energy, spiritual faculties, and take up achieving evenness of the object there. Yes, venerable sir, the venerable Sona replied. So here, what the Buddha is describing is this middle way, that if your mind has too much craving and longing and yearning, it's not in the middle, it's not going to perform well. But also, if your mind is dull and lethargic and unmotivated and unenthusiastic, it's going to be complacent and it's not going to feel peaceful and joyful there too. So it's just like this stringed instrument that you need to tune it perfectly in the middle. And when you tune the mind perfectly in the middle, which the Eightfold Path is helping you to figure out how to do that, then your mind can perform optimally. This is where the mind eliminates discontentedness. This is where your personal and professional relationships will blossom. And this is where you get focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. So here, what you're looking to do is not arouse energy forcefully, right? So if you're noticing that you are dull and lethargic and you need to bring the mind to the middle, you need to arise energy, but don't do that forcefully. You'd like to move the mind into the middle and move it there, but not with a whole lot of force because the mind doesn't like that impermanence, that aggressiveness. But also if the mind is overactive, right, or complacent or any of these other feelings, you would like to bring the mind into the middle just little by little. It's kind of like these little touches to bring the mind to the middle so that you have this balance of energy and this evenness of temper. What questions do you guys have here on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on. Oh, uh, looks like Christine, you have a question. Go ahead. Christine, do you have a question there or was that your hand up from before? I myself and I couldn't and then I was trying to write in the chat, but I also couldn't. <laughs> uh, but speaking. So, um, yeah, I noticed that I'm having very hard time keeping my mind in the middle when I'm giving workshops to other people. Uh, it seems to bring up a lot of adrenaline and it seems to... Uh, I'm kind of calm and relaxed. Uh, it's not that that I'm really portraying this, this super driven, aggressive person, but I notice it after the workshop. I just have been giving a three day workshop and I came home and for the last two days, my mind was constantly replaying the scenes and I just couldn't stop it at all. And I was really exhausted. So that's showing me that I was not in the middle at all, right? Absolutely. And, you know, part of that is actually helpful, right? If you're looking back over your three-day seminar and you're trying to figure out like, hey, what could I have done better or what did I do well, right? And kind of confirming that, that's like really helpful for your inner improvement. But when the mind becomes obsessive about it, that's what you would like to cut off and let go of because the mind's not in the middle at that point. Mm -hmm. And during the seminar, this, this tension that I'm having there, I don't even know where it's coming from. 
but it seems to be it must be created from my own mind too right so that's something where i'm out of the middle too Yes, if there's tension in the body or in the mind, there's some craving, desire, attachment that's in the mind, that the mind's longing and yearning for something. Maybe you're trying to be perfect or you're trying to overperform or maybe you're maybe scared about how people might envision you or maybe you're trying to deliver your extreme best and not being comfortable with just whatever it is that you can provide. So you'll need to bring the mind to the middle. You'll need to investigate the mind and figure out what is it that the mind's longing and yearning for because there's some craving there. And oftentimes, you know, without our wisdom, we might think that longing and yearning to do the very best is wise. But what you would like to do is you're not interested in being complacent in your three-day seminar because you need to deliver a certain amount of teachings. But you're also not interested in longing and yearning and craving and trying to overperform and be perfect. What you're looking to do is come to the middle where you aspire to do a good job. You have the goal, you have the objective, you're interested in doing a good job and you work towards that gradually over the three days and any preparation that you do before the seminar as well. But if you're longing, yearning to be perfect, for example, or you were complacent, then this is going to not promote the mind being in the middle. Thank you. This is really helpful because it uh points me towards uh, investigating what's actually going on and what kind of craving is there. I'm going to take a look at that. Thank you, teacher. Yes, you're very welcome. And if you need help as you're doing that, just feel free to let me know. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. So I'm not seeing any questions in Zoom. I'll just check YouTube and Facebook again. Not seeing any there either. So let's go on to chapter 58, which is the next chapter. The Pleasure of Sleep. Okay, so I'll read this chapter for you guys. What do you think, monks? Have you ever seen or heard that a head-anointed Katya king, while exercising rule all his life, is pleasing and agreeable to the country if he spends as much time as he wants, yielding to the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of inactivity, the pleasure of sleep? No, venerable sir. Good, monks. I, too, have never seen or heard of such a thing. What do you think, monks? Have you ever seen or heard that a royal official, a favorite son, a general, a village headman, a club master, while exercising leadership over the club all his life, is pleasing and agreeable to the club if he spends as much time as he wants yielding to the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of inactivity, the pleasure of sleep? No, venerable sir. Good, monks. I, too, have never seen or heard of such a thing. Monks, what do you think? Suppose there is an aesthetic or Brahmin who spends as much time as he wants, yielding to the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of inactivity, the pleasure of sleep, one who does not guard the doors of the sense bases, who is immoderate in eating, who is not intent on wakefulness, who lacks insight into wholesome qualities, who does not reside intent on the effort to develop the aids to enlightenment in the earlier and later phases of the night? Have you ever seen or heard that such a one with the destruction of the taints has realized for himself with direct knowledge or experience in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it resides in it? No, venerable sir. 
Good, monks, I too have never seen or heard of such a thing. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will guard the doors of the sense bases, be moderate in eating, and be intent on wakefulness. We will have wisdom into wholesome qualities, and will reside intent on the effort to develop the aids to enlightenment in the earlier and later phases of the night. Thus should you train yourselves. So what the Buddha is talking about here is ensuring that you're not complacent, that you remain dedicated, determined, and diligent in your practice. He's talking about a king. You know, have you ever seen a king who was essentially doing such a good job and the people in the country find him to be pleasing and agreeable, but yet he was fairly complacent, right? He was taking all this time to rest and inactivity and sleep. And the Buddhist student saying, no, I've never seen a, a really wonderful king who is just kind of all the time relaxing and complacent. And the Buddha's like, yeah, me too. You know, I've never heard of such a thing either. And then the Buddha goes through a whole bunch of other individuals. You know, have you heard of any of these individuals that are essentially complacent, but yet they are pleasing and agreeable to others? And his students say, no, we haven't heard of anybody like that. And the Buddha's saying, yeah, me either. I haven't heard of such a thing either. And now the Buddha's saying, okay, have you ever heard of a aesthetic or a Brahmin, essentially somebody who's on the path to enlightenment that is complacent, yet they actually get to enlightenment. That's this last part. Can somebody get to enlightenment and actually be complacent in doing so? And the students say, no, I've never seen anybody who's gotten to enlightenment who's complacent. And the Buddha is saying, yeah, me too. I've never seen anybody that's been able to do that either. So then the Buddha says, okay, so what you need to do in order to ensure that you're not complacent is guard your sense bases. What that means is the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind. These are the six sense bases. You need to guard these because this is what the mind's going to be longing and yearning through. This is where the craving, the mind is going to be longing through these sense bases, wanting agreeable contact. And if you get the objects of your affection, you're going to get those conditioned pleasant feelings. But if you don't get what you want, if you get disagreeable contact through these sense bases, then you're going to get painful feelings. So you need to guard these sense bases. So let me give you an example from my life. At one time, I had a craving for coffee, and I really, really enjoyed drinking coffee. It's one of the things I really enjoyed about moving to Thailand is there's iced coffee on pretty much every street, and it's so delicious and so tasty, and it's very inexpensive. So as I realized that I was addicted to this, I had to restrain the mind, and I needed to train it to no longer long and yearn for this coffee. But when I walked down the street, you get that aroma and you get that whiff and it like pulls your mind back into it. So I needed to guard the mind that when I walked down the street and I smelt the aroma of the coffee coming out of the coffee shop, I needed to guard the mind because I smelled that agreeable contact coming through the nose and I needed to restrain the mind and guard the sense bases that I'm going to walk past this coffee shop and I'm not going to allow that aroma to pull me back in because I was interested in getting away from caffeine, for example. 
And then moderation in eating. This is ensuring that you're not eating based on emotion. If you're experiencing painful feelings, you might decide to eat something in order to get back to pleasant feelings. So if you've ever eaten a whole lot of ice cream or chocolate cake and you were just doing it based on emotion, this isn't moderation in eating. So you would probably like to bring your eating down so you're eating smaller meals, maybe more frequently over the day, but you're not eating based on emotion. Or maybe you come down to one or two meals per day. This is what a lot of people end up doing. You don't need to force your mind to do that. You might actually notice that you just naturally do that as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. But where you see the mind eating out of emotion, you would like to cut that off and let it go. Just eat in order to sustain the body. The Buddha talks in other teachings that you should eat just enough that you've eliminated the hunger pains. So if there's pain in the body from hunger, you should eat and then just eat enough until that pain is gone. Don't continue to gorge. That would not be moderation of eating. Then be intent on wakefulness. This is ensuring that you're not complacent, that you're intent on being alert and energetic and awake, and you're interested in getting to enlightenment and waking up the mind and that you cultivate the wisdom of wholesome qualities like mindfulness, concentration, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, uh, humbleness, all of these kind of things. There's lots and lots of wholesome qualities that the Buddha teaches, and you would need to have the wisdom of what those wholesome qualities are because you need to cultivate those. And by cultivating those wholesome qualities, you're eliminating just the opposite, which is the unwholesome qualities. And then the Buddha talks about residing intent on the effort to develop the aids to enlightenment in the earlier and later phases of the night. So what he's saying is even as your mind's dozing off to sleep and you're sleeping to ensure that you're practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness is an aid to enlightenment. Without mindfulness, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. You need to cultivate the four foundations of mindfulness. So even as you're dozing off to sleep and your mind's kind of thinking about certain things, if there's unwholesome thoughts that come into the mind, you need to take action to cut those off and let them go. Or if there's wholesome thoughts, you need to support those, encourage those, don't allow them to fade. So something like the four foundations of mindfulness is an aid to enlightenment. Or concentration is an aid to enlightenment. Practicing right effort, those four right efforts, those four aspects of right effort, those are aids to enlightenment. So that's what he's describing here. Maintaining those in your practice in the morning, the evening, and the in the nighttime, he's not saying that part of it here, but you're going to need to practice those. It's like a full-time job training your mind, but then it gets easier and easier, and it gets effortless by the time that you fully cultivate the mind. Let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter, The Pleasure of Sleep, chapter 58. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 59. This one is titled, one who is constantly dedicated. So now you see the sequencing of the chapters. It's in, in this particular sequence for a reason because we're going from you know a need to have dedication and diligence, not being complacent, to now the Buddha's talking about dedication. One who is constantly dedicated. But monks, if a central thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while walking, he does not tolerate it, but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it. Then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while walking. If a central thought, 
A thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in a monk while standing, and he does not tolerate it, but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it. Then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while standing. If a central thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while sitting, and he does not tolerate it, but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it, then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while sitting. If a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while wakefully lying down, and he does not tolerate it, but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it, then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while wakefully lying down. So here the Buddha is talking about these four positions of walking, standing, sitting, and lying down and ensuring that you're practicing right intention, which these three qualities of mind are right intention, that if you have central thought, thoughts of ill will or thoughts of harming arising, that then you don't tolerate that. You apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. So no matter what you're doing all day long, this full-time job is that if you have mindfulness and awareness of mind and you see a central thought, a thought of ill will or a thought of harming come up, you apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. This would be a practice of right mindfulness and right effort. But what you're ultimately working to cultivate here is right intention, which is that second step of the Eightfold Path. So let me know what questions you guys have here. I'm not seeing any questions throughout all of the platforms. So we'll go on to the last chapter for today, which is chapter 60, one who is constantly complacent. And this is just the opposite of the chapter we just read, that if a central thought, thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises while walking, he does tolerate it. He does not abandon it. He does not dispel it. He does not terminate it. He does not obliterate it. And this person is lacking effort and moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while walking. So he says the same thing for standing, sitting, and lying down. So your dedication and diligence and determination, yes, it's reading. Yes, it's coming to classes. Yes, it's meditating. It's doing those things. It's yes, it's reaching out to your teacher for help. But it's also while you're walking down the street and you see a thought of uh, central desire or ill will or harming comes up in the mind, you cut that off and let it go, right? Or if you're lying down or if you're standing or you're sitting, this should be a full-time job where you're constantly practicing awareness of mind. And anytime you see an unwholesome quality arise, you cut it off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to do that. Redirect the mind towards something else. So let me know what questions you guys have here. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You guys have been a little bit quiet for the last little bit here. So let me see if you guys have any questions. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So what I'll do then is I'll just end class by thanking you guys for attending. Thank you guys for your questions. This is wonderful that you have questions to be able to get clarity and develop your practice through investigating and examining the teachings. 
Next week, we're going to be in chapters 61 through 70. So you're welcome to read those prior to class and we'll read them together in class because that way it'll actually help you if you see the more descriptive discussion that I share as part of each chapter, you'll be able to then see clarity and be able to get your questions asked during the class. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're in chapter nine, which is titled, What is Gamma and How Does It Affect Me? Here I'm gonna teach you about the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. I'm gonna essentially demystify it for you so that you no longer are thinking that this is mystical or magical or that it's punishment and rewards or something like this or some black cloud following you around. That's not what the natural law of gamma is. So I will help you to see that more and more clearly in tomorrow's class. And then this Wednesday, we're gonna be doing loving kindness meditation in class together. This is where we encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. So you're welcome to join that as well. So thank you all for joining. I appreciate all your efforts and all your dedication and diligence to learn these teachings. We'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.